welcome to Effective Change, a podcast sharing the journeys of people who have created social impact. And Effective Change would question the meaning of effective social impact and find out how these social entrepreneurs have found their own ways to run a socially impactful business. Hi, this is Natalie and Consuela. We're hosting today's episode and we hope you're doing well. So in this episode, we'll be speaking to Ben, who is the CEO of Good Boost. And Good Boost is a social enterprise that provides affordable and accessible therapeutic exercise programs through cutting edge technologies. Ben, welcome and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Firstly, we have asked Ben to prepare two truths and one lie about himself, just as a fun way to get started to know him before his work. So please go ahead, Ben, and give it to us and we'll have a guess. Sure. Uh, so my my two truths and one lie are, number one, I have a Guinness World Record. Number two, I have punched a heavyweight boxing champion. Number three, I have climbed the highest peaks in more than half of the countries in Europe. That's hard. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. This, that is very hard. I'm... All right, I'm just going to go for the second one, Esther Lie. Second one's a lie that I punched a heavyweight boxing champion. Yep. You agree in that one, Cosbella? <laughs> okay, I'm going to go for the third one because that one is my lucky number. Sometimes I'm right. It's purely a guess. Here's your lucky number. You are correct, Cosbella. So uh, the the truths are is that uh, I hold the Guinness World Record for dipping strawberries in chocolate in under a minute. The prior record to me was 53. Uh, I beat the world record with 59 in a minute. That was like eight, nine years ago now. And there's there's certain rules about how it works. You've got to have three bowls, one with strawberries, one with chocolate, uh, one empty one to deposit the chocolate-covered strawberries. You must have one arm behind your back at all times. There is very set criteria from Guinness and how it's uh, how it's to be completed, but I am currently the Guinness World Record holder for that uh, for that event, and I punched the heavyweight uh, boxing uh, champion Frank Bruno in uh, probably the mid nineties. So in my hometown in Bristol, uh, Frank Bruno was at the time doing the pantomime uh, in the local theatre, and I was one of the kids that was called up on stage at the end of it, and there were about four or five of us there, and. Uh, I got got the opportunity to to punch Frank Bruno, who was uh, I think not not far gone than the heavyweight champion of the world. Wow, that's brilliant! And congratulations for having a Guinness World Record. Like <laughs> that's amazing. Wow, well, it makes me want to eat like strawberries and chocolate right now. Is that horny treat? I'm so glad that we have you on the podcast. Now, just to go straight into kind of what a good boosters, and could you give us a little bit more, a brief intro to what you guys are doing with a focus on how you're creating social impact? You're more than happy to. Uh, be- before I go a bit deeper into what Good Boost is and our social impact, I think it's best to start with the challenge that we're working to solve. So Good Boost started due to the size of the musculoskeletal health challenge. Musculoskeletal or MSK is the conditions is an umbrella term for conditions like arthritis, back pain, complex pain conditions, neurological disorders, and they affect around 20 million people in the UK, about 1.7 billion globally. We're talking about three in 10 people on the planet live with of these conditions and not just that they are the primary cause of disability in the planet because of the associated pain limited function and poor mobility this isn't just a niggle in the knee for people it's not just an aching their back they're having a huge impact on individually individual's ability around the world to take part in life love leisure and they're the second most common reason for people taking sick leave from work too it's a it's a huge challenge and the prevalence is increasing year on year due to a combination 
combination of increased sedentary lifestyles, growing levels of obesity and aging population. So that's that's the challenge that we set out to, to solve. And it's a huge one. We are one piece of a much larger puzzle of organizations and people and healthcare systems everywhere working to tackle this challenge. As Good Boost, we're a social enterprise that develops digital technology and artificial intelligence to deliver, as you rightly said, affordable and accessible therapeutic exercise programs for musculoskeletal uh, conditions. And we know from the plethora of research that exercise is one of the most clinically effective and most cost-effective interventions for the prevention, management and treatment of MSK conditions. And our personalised exercise and rehab programmes that we deliver both on land and in water is designed to be beneficial and fun for people with a wide range of these conditions. And our mission is about creating the solutions to maximise musculoskeletal well-being through co-designed technology, transforming any space into a therapeutic place. And I'll explain a bit more what I mean by that later, where we want everyone to love looking after their musculoskeletal well-being through moving more, having fun and feeling better. In terms of social impact, it's working with the partners that we have, whether it's leisure centres, retirement villages, or in people's home, this whole idea of transforming any space into a therapeutic place so that it can improve people's pain, function and quality of life. So that's the social impact we're working to create. And we track these measures by collecting data from our participants. First, when they sign up, and then as they engage in our technology, we, we keep asking them questions time after time so we can track change. And we know from our data that we meaningfully improve pain, function, quality of life, and feedback from our participants. We know they're moving better, sleeping better, reducing their medication, and even cancel their orthopedic surgery as a result. And we know this creates direct benefit for our direct users, but also reduces the health burden for health systems. And beyond that, creates new customers, beneficiaries and impact for our delivery partners, such as those leisure centers and the charities we work with. That sounds truly like an amazing impact that you guys are making, improving the quality of people's lives. As I do personally believe it's one of the most important factors, like what's the meaning of life um, and the quality of life does does play into it i'm just kind of curious about how did good boost come about is that a story behind it is it like an idea you've been thinking for a long time or is it just a sudden kind of insight like oh why do i do this uh, so it started originally as a community research project in Oxford. The original idea happened on a coach between London and Oxford. At the time, I was working on a different social enterprise and working for other charities and social enterprises. And I was asked to mentor some students at um, Imperial on social enterprise. And <laughs> I was mentoring some students who were designing, developing, creating social enterprises for their specific background, their area of study and I realized at the time I was converting an old bus into a solar powered hotel to educate people about the benefits of sustainability. My background and <laughs> my degree was not in construction, design, sustainability, architecture. And on the bus on the way back, it suddenly occurred to me that maybe I should do something related to my area of specialism and my degree. So it was on that bus journey back and reflecting on my work, at working as an osteopath at the time for different social, social enterprises or charity or private practice about how could I support the patients that I was working with. 
And what I found, there were lots of patients who were really struggling to exercise on land because of pain, limited function, because of their MSK condition. They were looking for ways to manage their health. They'd been told by their physio or by myself, or they'd read about the importance of it, or they'd been told by their consultant leading up to surgery. And many of these were waiting for hip and knee replacement surgery. So we're trying to find ways to stay active, to manage their weight, improve their overall fitness, um, or to increase their strength before heading onto the surgery table. So that was where the idea came from. It was on a coach between London and Oxford. Um, and a few weeks later, I spoke to some physio friends, um, a few other friends I have in the social enterprise space and said, I've got this idea about working with local swimming pools so people can be active in water because they're struggling to be active on land. And that was it. We um, went to meet a local swimming pool. We asked them if we could have some space. We had this idea and concept to help the local community. And they said yes to us. <laughs> And back then it was completely analog. The idea was that participants could come along in a group of people, but with a few different MSK clinicians, physios or osteopaths, we would be able to create personalized programs for them in the pool. They follow those programs and we created these really amateur cards with exercise instructions and illustrations and laminated them so they were waterproof. And before and after every session, we'd ask people how they're doing, what they were here for, kind of so we could kind of design that program for them and at the end of it to collect more information so we can keep adapting and evolving that program session to session, personalised and tailored to them. That was it. And we went around Oxford with hundreds, if not nearly thousands of these laminated cards, because if you have a group of 10 people and all of them need the same exercise once, then you need 10 of every exercise. So we had all of these cards. <laughs> And that was how the idea started. We tried to grow it to a second swimming pool in Oxford, and it was a real challenge because just the logistics of having other clinicians taking time off from being in clinic and travel there and everything else and transporting the cards, we have to duplicate everything. It became really problematic and we couldn't grow, even though we were being asked to grow to more pools because we had people asking us for more sessions. So that's when we start to think about how to use technology, how do we look at training pool staff rather than having to send in a, an MSK clinician every time. So that was where the idea started. And over the last few years, we've been very fortunate that we've had the support and the funds that we could develop the technology and we've been able to grow the team and grow the expertise in engineering and computer coding and development so that we, can, we now deliver the service that we do throughout the UK. I'm just curious to kind of delve into deeper into your organization's business model. Would you be able to give us a quick view of it? And also, how do you guys balance profitability with social impacts made? And also, obviously, you've already said the logistic is quite hard. But now with the technology, you know, how does it get better? Yeah, so... Um... So our business model predominantly um, is a business to business, a B2B model. It's kind of like um, Zumba, the Latin dance, where what they do, they have a franchise or a licensed model and they work with leisure centres. And so leisure centres can be trained to then deliver Zumba. We have a similar model where we provide the tablet computers, the training and the technology so that leisure centres can deliver a personalised exercise and rehab programme in swimming pools and on land where they don't need to have a physiotherapist or a, or a clinician on site because the technology we've created when users use it they provide us all loads of details about their condition their preferences their ability and that's what generates a personalized program for them what that means is that this model means that they can run group sessions to make it cost effective for them because it needs to work for the venues we work with it if it doesn't work financially for them 
they won't work. They, yeah, they can continue working with us. So by being able to deliver a group session, um, so everyone has their own tablet computer, it means they can offer a truly tailored and personalized service for customers they wouldn't traditionally work with. People who come in with walking aids, people who come in with genuine mobility challenges and, and pain conditions who may not necessarily have seen a leisure center as the right place for them are now attending leisure centers week after week, month after month, because they know they're getting this tailored program. So our business model is that we provide them with that training, those tablet computers and the technology and ongoing support so they can deliver that service. So because of the different technologies we've been developing in the past couple of years, our business models are evolving. Um, next year, we're going to be delivering our, our first uh, subscription app, which will be our first ever direct B2C service, which will be a paid for one, which is essentially taking our aquatic technology um, that we've won multiple awards for now, um, externally validated all these things and making it available on the App Store, the Play Store, so that anyone with a swimming pool around the planet can then follow their personalized program. And then we've got a bit of a hybrid one we're aiming to come out next summer, where we're working with organizations like health, health institutions, clinics, charities, uh, so that they can deliver a virtual community exercise program. And what that means is they can then deliver these group sessions virtually, kind of like Peloton, but rather than on bikes, is everyone taking part in this virtual group class, but every single participant has a personalized program to them. So in that same group class, that same virtual session, you may have someone with a knee condition, someone with a shoulder condition, but everyone sees different exercises based on what they've registered their, their condition with or what information they've told us. And it means those virtual hosts who will be on camera saying hello to everyone don't need to instruct people because everyone has their own personalized exercises in the same way we work in leisure centers. So our business model has changed and adapted and evolved over the past couple of years. And that's mostly because we've had to think differently because of COVID, not just because leisure centers closed in the UK, so we got the opportunity to develop new technology, but also to make sure as a social enterprise, we are also more resilient. So if things happen again, such as future lockdowns or changes, we can still deliver our services to make sure we can still generate an income. Because on the question about profitability, First of all, it's revenue. Without some sort of revenue system, it's impossible for any social enterprise to continue. And without revenue, there's no service and there's definitely no social impact. So that's why it's so important to work through to understand how the best business model works for you and your service so you can keep delivering that sustained social impact. When it comes to things like profitability, so the way we're designed and set up as good boosters, we are held by our legal set up as an, as, a, as an organization that we must reinvest 51%, the majority of our profits into our social mission. And our social mission is to improve uh, MSK health and well-being. So when it comes to profitability, we do need to always work and strive to make a profit as every organization does. But we recognize the importance that we must reinvest that in our social mission. And there are many social enterprises out there which are truly not for profit. They reinvest all their profit into charitable donations, into the social mission. So the reason that we have the, the 51, 49% balance is that 
we want to have the opportunity to take future investment and we know that for traditional equity investment is very difficult to to attract investors if there isn't some way that they can get some return on their investment so that's where we've got to as a balanced model being a certain enterprise but also one that's growing quickly and knows that in the future we're going to need some level of of traditional investment to keep growing at the pace we are we are moving now I was, it's kind of a random question, but I've, so you were saying that they were doing kind of group exercise as well. Do you think there's any chance that perhaps doing the group exercise also motivates those people to keep going and also kind of forms, it, it might be a side effect of all the social impacts you guys are already making, but also kind of helps them to form a community of themselves where they get to know more people and then kind of do that exercise together and become friends and it also motivates them again in a different way to also get better together. I completely agree and the reality is is that apps don't heal people, people do. So in the same way we see in the leisure centres we work in, people come in week after week not because of the app, not because of our tablets, not because we've done everything we can to make it as engaging as possible, they come in next week because The people they meet there, they talk about the weather or TV or they talk about their lives and their families. They shirt week after week because they know there's someone there to chat to while doing something they know is good for their health. But if I really think about it, the main motivation for coming back week to week is to have that conversation, not necessarily to do some exercise and water. So when I say apps don't heal people, people do. What I mean by that is that an app can have bright lights, they can track your steps, they can be evidence-based and have all the great advice in it. But after a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, people drop off that habit. And we know that even when people have a life-changing event like a heart attack, the majority will start a new and healthier lifestyle and many will keep it up to the half-year point, maybe beyond it. Unless it has people connected to it to get them motivated, they're probably low in likelihood to sustain that lifestyle. When we're motivated by other people, we have peers and those connections, then the likelihood of us sticking with something and forming a long-term or even lifelong habit is much more likely. So apps don't heal people, people do. And you've got to look at what are the most effective apps and technology in the planet. There's social media apps. They're the most downloaded and most used app. Why? Because it has, it's all about creating connections to others. Where we can create health apps that put at the center of its service, supportive communities of peers, whether that's like we do in leisure centers, where they're in person, and that group connection and facilitation, or where we're working virtually to create virtual group sessions that we're doing now with partners, is all about a community of peer where it's that emotional connection, emotional support, social contacts and social contracts because you become accountable to other people, not just yourself. That's what truly creates long-term engagement. So yeah, it is incredibly important that people have those groups and connections. Do you think your um, past experience in ways have, it definitely has, I believe, but in what way has it shaped forming good boost and also what have you learned along your journey so far Hmm. yes so I trained to become an osteopath following multiple years of back pain so in my late teens my early 20s I had a real challenge with persistent back pain it impacted everything I was a very active person in my teens and it got to the point where I had to I almost stopped everything 
I was in pain every day. It was incredibly frustrating because I would go to see doctors and physios and consultants. I had MRI scans and x-rays and there was nothing that was distinguishably wrong with me. I was just dealing with this pain every day. It, I couldn't stand for more than a few minutes at a time before needing to sit down. And this experience meant that I felt that I had no power, I had no control, I got incredibly low. And yeah, it was a it was a real, it was a really difficult part of my life because it felt like I was losing grip on what I believed my life would be, didn't seem like it was going to happen. So I know that's like I still live with back problems now. I mean, even um at the start of the year, I <laughs> I, I woke up and suddenly I had lost the feeling in, in my foot and lost the power in my left calf. And I think what probably happened is I think I probably had some level of disc injury, which was compressing uh, one of my nerves, which supplies the area. And um, yeah, for, a, for four weeks, six weeks, I really struggled to, to walk around again. So I, on, I have an ongoing um, challenge with my back and associated MSK conditions. But it was that experience that made me want to train to be an osteopath. And the reason specifically an osteopath is that about two years after living with this back pain, someone suggested to me to go and see one. I didn't know what an osteopath was at the time. And yeah, a few weeks later, suddenly after some treatments and sessions, I was able to start living a more normal life and over kind of sustained effort myself. Then I got to a point where it, it wasn't a daily occurrence for me. So it was that experience and also using exercise and specific rehab as part of that recovery journey meant that I wanted to find something that I could support people going through what, what I went through. What I didn't realize when Goodby started was that I thought I was going to be supporting people who were in my age group in their 20s. But the majority of people we support are in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. So that was my journey to understand why I wanted to, to work in, in musculoskeletal health. It's been kind of experiences while a student um, being connected with charities and social enterprises and understanding that there could be mission-led and purpose-led organizations that work to create change, but also recognize you need to have a, a viable and effective business um, that gave me the confidence and kind of determination to take what was a community research project and turn it into what good business now that's a really inspiring story i believe for most of us and i was wondering on a bigger scale if we think about how at the moment partly due to covid and also partly due to technology everything's kind of turning app based or digital based for example fitness industry everything becomes an app um, an app that came to my mind that students use very often is like Shreddy. And not, but what you guys are doing is digitalizing healthcare. But do you see that healthcare industry actually evolving this way and making healthcare a lot more accessible by using technologies like creating apps or potentially creating these virtual programs? Uh, yes, uh, healthcare is changing rapidly. There's a huge emphasis on, on digital health. When you look at what's been achieved in the last 20 years, it's absolutely mind-blowing in terms of even the last couple of years, how, how digital health and the solutions out there have accelerated and what's available. Accessibility is key, but accessibility alone isn't going to solve, I believe, the health challenges of the 21st century. So when you look at the health challenges of the 20th century, things like typhoid, cholera, polio, uh, infections, diseases... Modern medicine has been very effective through immunization programs, uh, antibiotics, uh, sanitation to kind of overcome those. The challenges of the 21st century are, are all 
lifestyle related. They're, these conditions are often linked to long-term inflammatory responses, creating the increased risk of things like heart disease, uh, diabetes, NSK conditions, and combining that with kind of poor lifestyle obesity, which increases the risk of other things like inflammation and kind of all those biomechanical changes and the expression of different genes, which increases the risk, all these things. The thing is lifestyles can be adapted and improved to considerably reduce the risk of these conditions, prevent them, even treat them. So yes, digital health is definitely offering greater accessibility, but if a huge part of the future of healthcare for the 21st century is about lifestyle modification and adaptation to prevent, reduce and avoid these because there is a global shortage of healthcare professionals which will keep growing year on year. Digital technology can exist. It can be highly accessible. There are over 300,000 health and fitness and well-being apps on the app stores right now. 300,000 um, because the digital review agency, Orca, that review digital health and well-being apps for accuracy, credibility, um, digital security, all these things. If there are 300,000 out there, they have not been the panacea so far. And they've been around for, I don't know, 10 years now. We've all had smartphones generally quite ubiquitously. Haven't seen a massive change of anything. The burden of health is, and disease is increasing year on year that would have continued regardless of the pandemic. If it's lifestyle that needs to change, accessibility to better articles about eat healthier or walk more is not going to get people to walk more or eat healthier. It's not that people don't know better. We all know better is that we don't do better. That's it's a not a knowledge deficit, it's a behaviour deficit. The thing is, we don't always do what's in our long-term best interest. Hard, hard work pays off in the future. Laziness pays off right now. We're really bad at future forecasting, predicting the future. That heart attack you avoid is 20 years away. The exercise session you avoid you avoid that sweaty session or going out in the rain or kind of missing your favorite TV program right now. We are irrational in highly predictable ways. And the irrationality is that even though we know the thing is better for us long term, we don't do it. But we are predictably irrational. And as a result, we can design strategies to overcome that. So if we can work with patients and create solutions that mean it's something they want to do and be active rather than being told to do to change their lifestyle by a healthcare professional or a doctor or whoever else, but creating things they want to do, I think that's where digital health needs to make it work. One of the areas that I work in is, a, is around gamification. And I think it's really important to recognise that just throwing an app or a digital health solution at something you can, you can measure it better, you can monitor it better, but if we are dependent on people changing their lifestyle to reduce the greatest burden of disease, is not just going to be thinking apps and digital health alone is going to solve that, because it's, it's going to come down to people actively having a, walking a little bit more, actively having better social connections and hopefully reducing loneliness and mental health, and just having an app there on your phone doesn't mean you'll do that. It's the same thing that people buy a diet book. It can sit on your shelf and you may feel better because you've bought the diet book. But unless you engage with it, there's a reason for you deep down to go and read it and not just read it, but enact upon it. The apps on our phones are no more beneficial than that book on our shelves.
No, that's a great insight. And I'm definitely personally guilty of not following the digital programs I've signed up to. I'm massive. I love yoga, but uh, once I sign up to the program, pay for it, not doing it anymore. I don't know why, but I think it's just, it's basically what you said. I prefer to, I always think, oh, I have something better to do now. I can do it tomorrow. Then I just get put off. There definitely needs to be something that's more motivating than just oh, it's good for my health right now. But I believe there must be a solution somewhere. And I think eventually, hopefully, people will do it. And this, this, so, is, the thing, this is the thing about rationality, <laughs> that everything we tell patients for the public is based on the idea that we all behave rationally, that you give the information, we will process that information, I will change my behaviour as result. Because eating red meat increases the risk of cancer. Uh, running every day can uh, improve your mental health. Uh, going for a swim can reduce knee pain. Whatever it is, it, putting the information in front of people does not create behavior change. And this is the whole, I think, we're irrational, but we are predictably irrational. So rather than trying to convince people to change it by having an app that may nudge you to say, oh, did you know that um, we, are all, we all have these biases and actually we're quite valuable to watch hour, hour after hour of Netflix and knock it up because that little countdown that says next episode coming up is the same as uh, flashing lights in a casino. It's been, it's been designed to make us want to watch the next episode and we stay up later or we don't go for that run. Whatever. You can still tell people that, but it doesn't mean they're going to stop and change the behaviour. So we need to de design better strategies that overcome that so that it's something, as I mentioned, that they want to do. Where if we possible, we through social connection, social contracts where you, you are accountable to other people, not ourselves. That's what we need to figure out and work on. That's really interesting. I, it was, I also was watching a video yesterday about a professor saying that how our brain, only a very small part of our brain is rational part. And then when you actually try to persuade someone, you do appeal to the emotional part. And that might actually persuade someone instead of just saying one plus one equals two. It's actually quite interesting from a philosophical background. I'm, but I'm not going to keep going. I'll pass on to Nat. <laughs> Nat, take it away. So I guess thank you very much for sharing um, your business aspect. And I think one of the key takeaways that I took from what you mentioned was the sort of community aspect that you mentioned. Building on from that, um, as a social entrepreneur, how would you define making effective social impact? Effective social impact. <laughs> It's whatever you want to measure. I think that's the, that's the starting point. So first of all, creating effective social impact, I think is truly defining what the problem is. There's no point trying to measure something not knowing it is affecting the problem in a positive way. So our social impact is about improving musculoskeletal health. The biggest challenge for people who live with musculoskeletal conditions is that it impacts negative, it impacts their pain, function and quality of life, which have huge repercussions. But those are the key things cited by those individuals. So we know that's what we have to measure as our key point of reference is, are we improving people's outcomes and therefore are we creating effective social impact? So that's how we do it. How do you define effective social impact? I think as long as you can define the problem, Problem. And if you can understand the factors that impact that problem, and you can then measure those factors in the way that we deal with pain, function, and quality of life, then you can effectively measure social impacts, define it, and work out if what you're doing is tackling it. There are so many things you could measure, though. And I think that's one of the challenges of a lot of social enterprises is that 
sometimes they measure the wrong thing. And there's a really good tool called a theory of change, which is looking at step-by-step -step impact of your actions or inactions resulting in getting to the ultimate goal or mission you want to achieve. So drawing out that process is a really valuable way to understand who you're impacting, affecting, changing, and therefore what you should be measuring Another one for us for real social impact isn't just are we creating improvements in pain, function, quality of life, because actually we know that if people are exercise more often or connect with people more often, so they're less socially isolated, they will inherently improve their overall well-being. There is been more research studies published than we could ever hope to achieve in our team's lifetime than what's already been published. There's an argument here that the only thing we need to measure is are people showing up and are they enjoying the service? Because if they're showing up, enjoying the service, coming back time after time, do we need to measure pain, function and quality of life? Because they will inherently get those things. So then it goes a bit deeper is the reason we measure those things is we put to evidence that we do create those outcomes. Because we could sit on a high horse and go, well, we're a bunch of clinicians, researchers, very experienced in our, in our fields. And we know that if people show up and come back every week, they will get these health impacts. We will then go to some of our key partners, customers, stakeholders, and they'll go, well, so what? They've got no evidence to prove that. So there are many reasons why you may want to measure social impact and how you define social impact. So one is you're solving the immediate problem that you're tackling. Two is that sometimes you have to measure things for the purpose of growing and advancing in the organization. And it is essential for us to do that in order to keep having the conversations about the effectiveness of our products and services so that we can continue to grow um, our service and, and ultimately sell what we do to more partners uh, and clients. Oh, no, brilliant. And I just want to back off what you've mentioned in terms of how we can actually measure social impact. So in your opinion, you think is measurable social impact more valuable than immeasurable social impact? <laughs> it's not necessarily that I think it's immeasurable. It's just that some things are really difficult to measure. So there is more impact happening than what Good Boost is measuring. And I imagine every single social enterprise is measuring. And that may well be because to a degree, there isn't a way to measure it effectively. And this is why importance of looking at both quantitative and qualitative impact measurement is so valuable. So when it comes to things like research, publications and evidence, is often the quantitative numerical research is really important but ultimately there has to be some paradigm behind it so that there is a empirical way to measure that impact so within healthcare it's relatively standardized that these are the measures which have been created and universally used in research studies and in hospitals around the world and so that's what we use because we need to be able to compare what we do to other solutions such as surgery and medication however there are some things that those tools can't measure and those are things like people going back to work with a smile on their face people being able to wake up in the morning and jump out of bed and get up early enough to go and feed the birds on their part like they will have other repercussions like they will overall increase that person's quality of life measure i'm sure it will but those things that we can't measure we don't measure even though i'm sure that similar things are that happening all the time so we're trying to use this empirical method of research and measurement, which is great for looking at statistical values and probability that does what we're doing create the impact we think. Are we the true cause, causal link between someone's change in their pain, quality of life, function, whatever it is? But there's so much we're not capturing. So when it comes to the immeasurable things, 
it's really important it happens everywhere but some things just can't be measured does that mean that a social a social enterprise has failed if it's doing things and it can't measure stuff quite possibly yes because things are probably happening in different places and people are having people environments whatever they're trying to impact will be improving but if it's not being measured then is it doing anything at all i think this is this is the real challenge people organizations should do a good thing because we think it does good things but if we don't know it does good things are we putting our time efforts and resources into the right thing and that's the importance of being able to measure things even though i fully accept that it can be really challenging to measure. I think I've gone around in multiple roundabouts here, and I think I've made some sense, but that's where I've landed on. To give you an example, sometimes it's been impossible for us to measure things. So there is a test called the sit the stand test, one of the most universally used functional measure. And it's as simple as you sit in the chair, you stand up, you sit back down, and you do that with your arms crossed across your shoulders, and you do that action as many times as possible in 30 seconds. One of the most universally used indicators of functional ability. So we started using that because we thought it was a very simple way to measure. Are we positively improving people's strength and balance? One of the key indicators of things like falls, which falls fractures in the UK and mostly globally for older adults is the key reason for accidental mortality. So we thought, well, if we, we can measure people's improvement in strength and balance for the sit the stand test, then we know we are creating effective, positive social change. So we asked people, we provide them on our tablet computers, little animations of people sitting and standing. We gave them a timer, we gave them a countdown and asked them at the end of it, after they counted the number of sit the stands to enter that into the tablet. So we'd receive that figure. And every four weeks, we'd ask them to repeat it. The problem is, is people lie. <laughs> because we were seeing changes that were off the scale. That if we were genuinely creating these change, we had created the most wonderful silver bullet in MSK rehabilitation. It's very unlikely we did. And so this is the challenge with measurement. Are you measuring the right things? How accurate, objectively correct, correct is that thing? How would it stand in the scrutiny? Because it's very easy. Evidence and impact could be, could be based upon the interpretation of the person reading the numbers. There are so many factors involved in it that as social enterprises, we must do the best we can to get the best measurement we can of the social impact we're trying to measure and change. Because without that, we don't know if we're creating any change. And importantly, are we putting our time and effort into the right thing? No, I definitely agree um, in terms of things all within the behavior and psychology of when you know that you need to be you're being measured, naturally you'll lie or you'll purposely do something so that it seems that you are improving, etc. So I think I agree that one of the challenges that you know some social enterprise or across the board in terms of measuring any KPIs and etc. is doing it without people knowing so that you get the rawest data possible to actually do something and actually transfer that into some useful information to sort of improve what you're doing within the company. So yeah, no, definitely agree on that. And it is... If I can think of like a few steps in terms of how we got... So first thing, who or what are you measuring? What is the impact you want to see or have? How much impact can it be possible to practically measure given finite time, resources, collection methods, what it is? By collecting those measures, what will this contribute to our mission, organization, our growth? And what are the risks if we don't achieve that impact? So I think those are kind of steps I'd take to kind of get there. 
I'd also come back and always have a slap in the face of realization and always ask, so what? And it's so important to always ask, so what? Because you can say, oh, well, we're measuring um, our carbon footprint by number of miles not travelled by users because they're not going to a surgery. And they said they're going to a local swimming pool. So what? I mean, we could measure that. We could measure carbon footprint. And we do. We do estimate it based on users and based on we know the utilisation of healthcare services. We do measure it, but it's lower down our priorities of measurements. Because so what? Yes, it's really important that we find ways to have more environmental and sustainable healthcare services. But for us as an organisation, improving carbon footprint or reducing carbon footprint isn't actually going necessary to be a connection or a causal relationship to people improving their overall MSK health and well-being or reducing burden on healthcare services. So just because we can measure something doesn't mean we should measure something. Um, and I think that's something that's really important for, for us and also social enterprises to think about. I love that. I love definitely adding to my vocabulary of questions I asked myself. So, so what? It's definitely in there now. Um, thank you for sharing that. I guess like, next up, I wanted to maybe delve into just finalize sort of what good boost is looking to make sort of the impact side what are you guys looking to make in the future and possibly how can our audience get involved in, in the future it's it's, it's growing what we're doing. We know that musculoskeletal conditions is a global problem. So the impact we want to make is world domination. We want to do the best we can to be out there in as many nations, cultures, communities, languages as possible. But our big vision is supporting people and communities to support each other. And this comes right back to what I was saying about peer support and people working in groups and collectives to be active. We know that when people have connections to others, particularly peers living with the same similar conditions, and they have a way and opportunity to support each other in, in bite-sized pieces through volunteering or just showing up week after week, we believe that we can galvanize communities around the world to effectively create health and well-being in each other and themselves. So that's the change we want to see, whether it's in leisure centers, in virtual groups, in collaborative games where people are doing their rehab because they want to raise money for charity, whatever it is, however we deliver this, it's all about how we create solutions where it's about the wealth of connection and community through an app or a digital health device, not about the relationship with the app itself, where we can create solutions where the re relationships with all the people in there and they collectively work together to keep people engaged, active and supporting and managing their MSK health. That's where we believe we can create real change rather than having what could just be a very smart exercise app, but it's no better than a piece of paper because if there's no reason for people to want to engage in it, then again, it's that piece of paper that gets put in the drawer and no one takes part in any physical activity or lifestyle change. In terms of how the audience get involved, the best way is probably to go on our website and see what we do. Um, if it's something that you're interested in, to drop us a line because we're always looking for people to be involved in our co-design, our testing, uh, advisory groups. And if that's something that your audience believes they can do, then we are always more than welcome to kind of have chats and look at how people can support what we're doing to so that we can do better at our job at Good Boost. Brilliant. Um, and I'll be putting all the links in the description for our audience here listening to this episode. So for those who are interested, please get involved. Please reach out to Ben. I'm sure he'll be happy to reach out and start a conversation there. So I guess to summarise today's episode, if you have one piece of advice for our audience interested 
in starting a social enterprise or just create any sort of social impact, what would it be? The key piece of advice is really understand the problem. If you don't think you understand the problem, go and speak to people who are experiencing and living with that problem or people who truly have a great grasp and understanding of that problem. Without understanding the problem, you're never going to know what impact or change or what measurement you should be including as part of your social enterprise. Or if you have any part of the right steps involved to create a theory of change, to even hypothesize that what you're doing or what you created could improve or tackle that problem. So the one piece of advice is go and understand the problem. And if you don't, speak to people who do. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And I guess thanks again, Ben, for coming on to the podcast. And I feel like from a personal perspective, I really enjoyed listening to your journey. I think from where you started, from that bus ride um, from Oxford to London or the other way around, you know, it's amazing how far it came from having these paper laminated copies to where it is today and the future that it holds. That's amazing. And I mean, personally, I'm taking some great advice here on the things that you mentioned. So thank you very much. Um, thank I really learned a lot because I, I haven't even though working social impact for so many years I haven't learned much about you know how, how what's the best way to use technology and app to actually help people and not just to make things more accessible actually build a habit I just haven't thought that far I always thought oh app is a great solution but then I never asked myself like why why should we have an app so what's the point of it and then what how we can make it better and what's actually a real problem so I'm definitely learning so much as we as you guys were speaking you're very welcome. And thank you both for inviting me on the show. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you both. Well, don't forget to follow Effective Change and obviously Good Boost as well on social media and every links and details will be in the description. And once again, thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. Thank you both.